Welcome to Aircrew Interview. I'm Mike Young, your host, and this podcast is with former Concorde captain John Hutchinson. John gives some great stories from his 15 years flying arguably the most beautiful aircraft in the world, the Concorde. As well as the Concorde, he also chats about his RAF career and also flying with other airlines. So if you like what we do here, head over to patreon.com forward slash aircrew interview to help us out for as little as $1 per month. Also visit us at aircrewinterview.tv to watch all of our other interviews and sign up to our newsletter. Enjoy. So John, when did you become interested in aviation? I think like, I was interested in aviation from the age of about seven or eight. I have no idea why. I was born in India. We lived in India until 1947, 1948. I'd never saw an aeroplane all the time I was in India. I didn't, I'd never actually seen a live aeroplane. And yet, somehow or other, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. It was sort of programmed into me. And I know that because I collected all these books, the Boys' Wonder Book of the Royal Air Force and um, I- aircraft identification books and all that sort of thing, which I could get my hands on in India. And we got back to England and my mother bought me a joyride in a Tiger Moth out of Bembridge Airport, Isle of Wight, and all that did was confirm to me what I already knew I wanted to fly aeroplanes. And I joined the Royal Air Force on my 18th birthday and uh, the rest as they say is history (laughs) I had never flown an aeroplane in my life I'd simply had this one joyride in a tiger moth I didn't drive a car Um, and I'm confronted with this chunky aeroplane in Harvard it's a big piece of heavy metal and I had a flying instructor whose name was John Ayres, who's a miserable so-and-so. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was a very, very apprehensive, very underconfident young 18-and-a-half-year-old. And come the first flying test, which was the 15-hour preliminary clearhood, they called it, I failed it abysmally. Really? I absolutely failed it, and I was on the point of being scrubbed from the course and I was reallocated a new instructor and he managed slowly to build up my confidence and get me going and he got me solo and then suddenly at about I don't know 25-30 hours of flying on the Harvard suddenly it all clicked into place and from that moment on, I've never, ever had a problem in a flying course. Really? Any flying course I've ever done since. But having gone through this sort of um, ordeal by far of those first sort of 20 flying hours on the Harvard, yeah. where I really didn't know whether I was coming or going, suddenly everything clicked into place. And, um, you know, I owe, I owe the Harvard a huge debt of gratitude actually because it was an airplane that had vices it would tip up onto its nose very easily it would ground loop very easily it would flick stall if you pulled too tightly in a turn it had all sorts of little vices and things that could catch you out and what it taught you above all else was respect for the air and respect for airplanes and that is something that was programmed into me forevermore by the Harvard 
And then I went up to Kinloss. And by now, I suppose we're talking about September 1957 for the operational conversion onto the Shackleton. And that was a tough course. It went on quite a long time. And you were learning all the sort of um, procedures and drills and things for submarine hunting, basically. Is that what the Shackleton was designed for? Yep, it was a maritime patrol aircraft, anti-submarine aircraft. And that was the whole training was to do with um, tracking submarines and keeping an eye on on Russian warships as well. (coughs) And it was a, a tremendous course. And what I'm really proud of now, and as I look back on it, is that the version of the Shackleton I went on to was the Mark I Shackleton. So it was a tail dragger, none of this poncy nose wheel stuff. This was, a, this was a proper aeroplane, serious aeroplane. And basically, you know, a direct descendant of the Lancaster. Yeah. Absolutely direct descendant of the Lancaster. Powered with four Rolls-Royce Griffin engines, contra-rotating propellers. Um, it was a fabulous piece of kit. And yeah. it served the Air Force very, very well over a very long period of time. It did go on a long time, didn't it? It went on a very long time. John chats about his time on the airlines. I don't want short-haul flying. I want long-haul flying. I want the big jets. So I opted for BOAC, and I did my induction course with them and was posted onto the 707, Boeing 707, which was a great aeroplane. And it's unbelievable looking back on it now. You know, we're so used to GPS inertial navigation and all that stuff the Boeing 707 required a flight navigator and one of the first things I had to do was to get a flight navigator's license oh really? yep I used to hold a flight navigator's license and this was a very intense course probably one of the most intense courses I've ever done it not only involved the ground school element learning you know how to do air plots and all the chart work um, and how to use a sextant it also involved um, training flights uh, down to Bermuda which is a great place to to use as a as a nav route because if you miss Bermuda you're really stuffed (laughs) (coughs) you know there's nothing else within 800 miles in any given direction so it concentrated the mind enormously and by the by one of the instructors um, that I used to fly with regularly was a gentleman called Norman Tebbit who subsequently of course became Lord Tebbit as we all know and very very nice chap he was and, and a very excellent instructor as well I have to say Anyway, so there was the 707, and in 19, January 1971, I was posted on to a splendid aeroplane, the Boeing 747. Uh, yeah. And to my great joy and delight, I didn't have to navigate any longer because it had inertial navigation, which did it all for you. Way. <laughs> and I then spent several years on the 747, which to this day I regard as one of the great civil airliners that was ever made 
It was a lovely aeroplane to fly in spite of its sort of bulk and size. It handled beautifully. It really did. It was a, it was a, a gentleman's aerial carriage. It was a lovely, forgiving, gentle sort of aeroplane to I fly. I imagined it a bit sluggish. No, no, no. It wasn't sluggish. It was quite responsive, really. And I had great credit to Boeing. A lovely aeroplane. And I had a very happy time on that. And then in 1976, I got the chance to get my command... And I was offered the 707 or the VC-10. Well, I'd never flown the VC-10. I had flown the 707. And I thought, well, let's have a go at the VC-10 and see what that's like. So off I went to the VC-10. And I suppose actually the VC-10 course, this command course, must have been late 1975. Because I got my command on the VC-10 in January 1976. Yes, so the course must have been in the tail end of 1975, and that was done up at Prestwick. Mm -hmm. And having got my command on the VC-10, to my total astonishment, about a year later, I put in a speculative bid for Concord, never thinking for one second that I'd get onto it, because I was far too junior. I'd only been a captain for about a year at this point. Yeah. And I put in this bid, and to my astonishment and amazement, I learnt that I was on the next Concorde course starting in May 1977. Wow, it was wow. John chats about the Concorde. So to... My astonishment, as I said earlier, uh, suddenly found myself posted onto the Concorde fleet in the summer of 1977. And I then embarked on this very, very intense course. I tell you what, um, anybody who went onto that aeroplane to get through that course, you really had to be absolutely convinced that this is what you wanted to do above all else the course was six months long six months yeah i mean that compare and bear in mind these are all very experienced pilots these are not sort of raw new novice pilots going onto the airplane these are extremely experienced pilots and british airways was absolutely determined that they were going to avoid ever having an accident with one if they possibly could because they knew that if there ever was a crash with one it could spell the end of the whole project because it was such a political aeroplane three months of that six month course was ground school and every week you would have ground exams progress checks and you had to get 90% or, or better for every one of those exams all the way through so and and once you got if you got behind in that course you were doomed you'd never yeah. catch up there was a huge amount of learning to be done and that was also combined with about 80 85 hours of simulator time as well so it was a really really tough three months of ground school and simulator flying at the end of that three months, you then went down, in my case, in those days, to Royal Air Force Prize Norton. 
and we did circuits and bumps at Bryce Norton and that was tremendous fun that was my first takeoff in the aeroplane was on on one of these circuit and bump routines yeah. out of Bryce very light aeroplane we always did the takeoffs with the reheats on regardless there was a procedure for takeoffs without reheats but it was it involved a whole sort of different set of calculations and in the end it was deemed that it was far safer just to have one standard procedure and that we'd always use reheats regardless yeah so there you were a very light aeroplane doing these reheated takeoffs it was like a jet fighter really was so you know having not got onto my jet fighter earlier on in my royal air force career i now realized i i was in something pretty much similar to to what i'd always aspired to a very very powerful very responsive very beautiful thoroughbred of an aeroplane that's the only way i can describe concord so we did this session of circuits and bumps at Bryce, and then having done that you then spent three months flying down the route with another training captain they what they did was before concord ever entered service there was a nucleus group of captains and co-pilots that were trained by british aerospace at filton and also trained by people like Trubshaw. They did their training with those test pilots. And they were the nucleus group that then subsequently trained all the new courses that were coming onto Concorde. And I was on the third Concorde course, by the way. Wow. So it was very, very early on. Yeah. And um, I suppose it was December... 1977, I was, I had the Concorde stamped up in my pilot's license and I was free to go. And the flights in those days, they were restricted in where they went. There was a flight, I think, three times a week to Bahrain and, um, and I can't, you know, I can't remember that. Maybe it was a daily flight to Bahrain. It was three times a week to Washington, for sure. Yeah. It might have been a daily to Bahrain. Um, so, basically, my flying on Concorde for the first 18 months or so was either to Bahrain or to Washington. And then, of course, what happened was, I mean, New York was where we needed to get to to make the aeroplane viable. Yeah. The aeroplane entered service on the 21st of January 1976. That was the first commercial flight of Concorde to Bahrain. And it was synchronised with a departure from Paris Mm -hmm. with an Air France flight going to Rio de Janeiro. In that first six months, British Airways were only flying to Bahrain and they were lobbying hard to get clearance into the United States. And the airfield that gave us our big breakthrough was Washington's Dulles International Airport. And in the summer of 1976, we got our clearance to go into Washington's Dulles Airport on a trial basis. Mm -hmm. What they actually found was very, very 
almost immediately was that far from getting complaints, they're getting everybody from the local area coming up to the airport to watch the Concorde landing or, or watching it taking off. Yeah. And no complaints at all. When's it next coming? Sort of thing. Um, and by the time I'd got onto the aeroplane, we'd got those two routes, Bahrain and Washington. So that's where I went to for my first um, first few months of Concorde flying. And then in November. I think it was November 1978 Concorde got clearance to go into New York and that became the bread and butter of the whole operation yeah. that was the big one and we ended up with two flights a day to New York That's a lot. the Speedbird 1 that left at 10.30 in the morning and the Speedbird 3 that left at 7 o'clock in the evening and um, that was just fantastic Um, on top of that we had flights to Barbados which was a wonderful route for the Concorde and occasionally we'd have flights to Toronto so that was the sort of um, scheduled side of the Concorde operations Um, what happened eventually in the around about 83 I think 83, 84 one of the Concorde pilots said we're not utilising these aeroplanes as much as we should we ought to do charter flights British Airways didn't want to do charter flights they didn't think that was dignified uh, absolute rubbish <laughs> and, and he organised with his pub to have a one-off Concorde charter which was immensely successful yeah. and um, that then developed, and in fact, I ran for a short while at company uh, with a couple of other Concorde flight crew, um, a charter operation. We did charter flights to Newcastle, Cardiff, um, Marrakesh, Bordeaux, all over the place. Um, and then eventually a company called Goodwood Travel in Canterbury um, developed a really terrific program of Concorde charter flights and one of the great things about those charter flights they were they should never there were people who used to snare about you know Concorde that's all it's good for charter flights what those charter flights were doing were giving us the taxpayer the great British public who owned those aeroplanes in effect yeah actually um, it gave them the opportunity that they might otherwise never have got of, of a flight on, a con- on an airplane that A, they loved and B, they, that they as taxpayers had invested in considerably. So they, they, I was a great fan of these charter flights and, and they were great fun to fly, by the way. Um, so where do we go from here? I mean, I, I just had the most wonderful time on Concorde and I stayed on that airplane for 15 years until I retired. And one of the great privileges it gave me was the opportunity to work with the BBC and do a lot of air shows with them. And we used to carry BBC crews up with us. And I was involved in that very famous picture um, of the Concorde and the Red Arrows flying over the QE2, which was one of those sort of iconic 
pictures. The photograph was taken by a wonderful aviation photographer called Arthur Gibson, whom I knew very well and a great friend of mine. Um, and that sort of flying was fantastic. It really was. It had an appalling visual, which subsequently, many years later, um, probably around the early 80s, uh, was redesigned and, and reconfigured as a computer-generated visual system. But the original visual system was a great big sort of topographic map on a wall, a massive great thing over this map. Um, and it wasn't at all realistic, that visual. It was, co- it was actually quite disorienting. Really? I, I used to stick to the instruments and yeah. try and ignore the visual. I didn't want to s- see the pictures the visual was giving me. Um, in terms of the handling characteristics of that simulator and how faithful it was to the aeroplane, it was very good. Yeah, very accurate indeed. So could you talk us through your first um, reheat takeoff? What, what was it like? The first reheat takeoff was during training at Bryce Norton, very light aircraft. Um, all I could say about it is my stomach was left behind at the beginning of the runway. You know, <laughs> very light aircraft, full power, reheats on, and the airplane would go off like the proverbial off a hot shovel. <laughs> and 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 you you knew that that airplane wanted to get into the air into its natural environment just as quickly as it possibly yeah. could. It was very 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 dynamic. So, it had a very special design. The wings tipped down at the end. Why is this? The wings, that wing design is just fantastic. And the, and what you have to remember is it was all designed by models in wind tunnels no computers, no computers doing it at all they'd, they'd try a shape out check it all out in the wind tunnel no we need to modify this we need to modify that have a bit of a twist here bit of a curve there and endless endless wind tunnel testing finally produced that wonderful ogival delta wing that you see there and the fascinating thing about that wing is that at slow speed it produced lift in an entirely different way from a normal conventional wing a Concorde wing if you if you're on a infinite length of runway you could go infinitely fast and you would not get airborne. It would just ground grip. Really? It was not until you rotated the aeroplane and presented the wing at an angle of attack to the airflow that it produced lift. And it did that by virtue of creating a massive vortex over the top surface of both wings. And it was that low pressure within that vortex that gave you your lift. And then as you accelerated above about 250, 260 knots, gradually then the wing would behave like a normal wing and produce lift in the normal way. But at slow speed, it relied entirely on this vortex-generated lift. And it meant that the airplane didn't actually stall. You could increase the angle of attack and the 
vortex would just get stronger and stronger and eventually what would happen is the center of lift would move ahead of the center of gravity yeah. and the airplane would sort of pitch up and you'd fall out of the sky. Yeah. So what was it like to fly? Was it easy to handle? Yeah, that's a very, very good question, Mike. The answer to that is it was incredibly easy to fly. Incredibly easy to fly. It was extraordinarily responsive. You could fly it with your thumb and your forefinger. If you trimmed it all up, it, you could, you'd just take your hands off and it would just sort of sit there. It was absolutely outstanding in terms of, of handling qualities. <coughs> and of course, it had these wonderful, very, very responsive Olympus engines with their reheats. And it, it had a, a huge reserves of power. So it was a very powerful very responsive thoroughbred having said that it was a demanding aeroplane to operate if that makes sense that distinction in pure handling terms very very easy in terms of managing the aeroplane flying from A to B it was definitely demanding and to give you an example of that for instance you know, there were various emergencies that could happen when you were flying along at Mach 2 that would compel you to go subsonic. And engine failure is one obvious one. Yeah. Now, if that happened, you were going to be going down regardless, whether you liked it or not. And air traffic control communications in mid-Atlantic was all done with HF, high-frequency radio, and you didn't get instantaneous responses from your air traffic controllers. You had to establish communications with them. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it, 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 was, it was a very laborious business getting a clearance. Yeah. But the reality was that you were going to be coming down anyway into the subsonic track structures. Yeah. So you had a map showing you with, where every time you flew across the Atlantic, you had a map with the subsonic tracks for that day yeah. on that map and you'd plan your descent so that you came down between those tracks and not into them yeah. while you're negotiating this clearance and the flight engineers transferring fuel forward to keep the center of gravity in the right place there's somebody trying to negotiate air traffic clearances the other guy's trying to fly the airplane and keep it under control and and you were absolutely flat out. And then you could be in a situation where you were now subsonic and you're in the middle of the Atlantic and because you lost about 30% of your range by virtue of going subsonic, you could be in a situation where you could neither get onto New York or back to Heathrow. Mm. So you were, it was very much a PNR, point of no return aeroplane. Yeah. And you were looking at airfields like Shannon, Santa Maria and the Azores, Bangor, Maine, uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, Sydney, uh, Gander, Newfoundland. Mm -hmm. And you were looking at all these places and you're saying, well, you know, if, if something happens now, I can make Gander. If something happens now, I can make Bangor, Maine. And eventually you get to a point where if something happens now, I can get to New York. Yeah. So you, were, you had all these sort of tactical problems going on. So that's what I mean when I say that it was a demanding aeroplane yeah. to operate and it was an aeroplane that d 
did not tolerate incompetence. Yes. It stood no nonsense. You had to manage it properly, properly, or it would start managing you. So you were busy basically from take off to land. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You were absolutely. So was there a lot of pre-flight checks? Huge amount. Yep. Uh, as far as external checks were concerned, of course. I had the great privilege of a flight engineer, so I didn't. I could sit in the nice warm flight deck drinking a cup of tea oh, nice. while the poor old flight engineer was going out in the middle of the winter in New York in a snowstorm and <laughs> doing his pre-flight, oh, his external check. Yes, he used to love that. <laughs> I loved it, sitting in the flight deck, <clears throat> nice and warm. The most memorable problem I ever had with a Concorde and I had remarkably few in the 15 years I was on it we were coming back from Washington and I don't know an hour and a half from London something like that and I'm about to eat a very nice piece of steak and suddenly the airplane goes I mean really violent stuff yeah I was being thrown around like a sort of rat in a terrier's mouth. <laughs> and I thought, goodness gracious me, turbulence? This is turbulence like I've never known. I mean, you didn't basically get turbulence at the sort of heights we were flying yeah. at. And then I realised, of course, it wasn't turbulence at all. It was actually an engine surge. Okay. Now, an engine surge is, if for some reason or another, and there are various things that can cause it, the airflow in the engine breaks down and the engine doesn't like it very much and it protests and that's what this engine was doing mm-hmm. now there's a very long complicated drill for an engine surge at Mach 2 and it has two or three memory items and then you go into a massive long checklist which is basically troubleshooting to try and establish what it was yeah. that caused the surge mm-hmm. and if possible to fix it and carry on the first item of the surge drill is to close all four throttles that stops all the thumping and the banging mm-hmm. brilliant but it's also what was driving you along at back two and the deceleration is like going into a wall yeah. so the cabin crew and the trolleys and the passengers all come and join you on the flight deck <laughs> to come and give you a helping hand and you then proceed with the drill. Now, the flight engineer was a very, very switched-on guy, very good friend of mine called Bill Brown, who had spotted that the variable geometry intake in the number three engine had driven itself fully shut. Mm-hmm. The computer controlling, controlling it had gone bananas and had driven it into entirely the wrong position. And that was what was causing the surge. And he said, look, Skipper, instead of going through the whole checklist, can I just try this? And I said, Bill, if you think it was that, go for it. So he hard-selected the alternate computer that controlled that intake. And incidentally, it should have automatically switched over to the other computer once it detected that it had done something that was completely disagreeing with what was going on with the other three intakes it should have immediately switched to the alternate computer and it hadn't done so but that's another another story yeah he hard selected it 
to that computer and we've then very 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 carefully opened that number three engine up and it was fine the number two engine up it was fine opened up the outboards and everything was okay and we resumed Mac 2 and carried on to to London so that was absolutely fine yeah I eventually got my voice down from a from a sort of high-pitched squeak and made a suitably reassuring announcement to the passengers. <laughs> I can imagine. And then I thought, oh, I'd better go back and see them all because normally we never went back into the passenger cabin. We'd keep an open flight deck door and the passengers could come up and visit us ah, okay. anytime they wanted. We never went back there because it interfered with the cabin service. Yeah. So I thought this rather sort of dramatic event justified going back and talking to them and I went back and talked to every one of the passengers and I remember getting to one British lady and she said I don't know why you're worried about us she said young man she called me and I said what do you mean why what are you talking about she said you should be thinking of your cabin crew and I said why she said they were absolutely terrified and I said oh dear were they really and I said okay well I'll have a chat with them as well anyway I explained to everybody that you know what it was and that incidentally in my experience as an airline captain if you ever have problems if you explain them to the passengers fully uh, what it was and what you're doing about it and roughly how long you think it's going to be if that's appropriate it defuses problems enormously anyway I'd gone around and I'd had a chat with the cabin crew and they were all sort of comforted by my uh, reassurances and I went back up onto the flight deck and we landed at, at Heathrow and I thought well I'll go back to the front door and say goodbye to them all and I <laughs> I was standing by the front door this is something I shall never forget as long as I live Concord carried a lot of booze on it this lot had drunk the aeroplane completely <laughs> dry they had drunk all the gin, the vodka, the scotch the white wine, the red wine the champagne, the cognac the port, anything, anything all gone and they came up up the aeroplane like this, staggering about saying thank you very much for a wonderful flight (laughs) so that's one of my more memorable (laughs) Concorde experiences Yeah, typical day obviously started at home with me getting up and I used to get up at about uh, half past five, leave the house by shortly after six because by doing that I could beat all the traffic up, uh, all the commuting traffic, could in those days anyway. I don't don't think leaving at six would do the business now but it it did back then and I would get to Heathrow at about 7.15, go and have coffee and something to eat and we'd then assemble in crew reporting at about quarter to nine for the 10.30 flight. Get our briefing, half past eight, quarter to nine, something like that. Um, have a very thorough briefing, decide on the fuel we're taking, um, look at the weather, obviously, any airspace restrictions, all that sort of stuff would be covered then. And you'd then go out to the aeroplane and typically you'd arrive at the aeroplane probably about an hour and a half so you'd get to the aeroplane at about nine o'clock in the morning I'd go up into the flight deck poor old flight engineer would go around and kick the tyres and make sure there was nothing falling off anywhere 
and we would then we the pilots would go through a whole series of checks of our own for the instruments on each side of the flight deck the flight engineer when he came onto the flight deck would do a similar thing with his panel and then we'd end up in a coordinated sort of series of checklists that led up eventually uh, to the engine start procedure as far as the passenger boarding was concerned that would start about half an hour before the chocks away time so the passengers typically be boarding from about 10 o'clock 5 to 10 10 o'clock onwards and then at about 10 15 the dispatcher would come up and say they're all on board and everything's stowed and we'd say sign the load sheet say goodbye to the dispatcher and then get clearance to start our inboard engines because there's no auxiliary power unit on Concorde. So you, it wasn't until you started an engine that you got any hydraulic or electric power. So we had to have that before we pushed back. Start the inboards and then we'd push back on time, hopefully, at 10.30 with the two inboard engines running. And then as we were pushing back, we'd start the outboards park the aeroplane say goodbye to the tug and the ground engineers and they would chug away in the tug and then you'd get your taxi clearance and out you'd go to the runway and as you were going out to the runway again you'd be doing a whole series of checks um, literally checking every single system that it was operating and you'd get to the holding point for the runway having completed all the checks, wait your turn in the queue. Line up on the runway. Uh, lining up was interesting. The flight deck was about 35 feet ahead of the nose wheel. So when you... And you wanted to use all the runway. You didn't want to waste runway yeah. in Concorde. You never want to waste runway in any aeroplane as a matter of principle. Yeah. And you come onto the runway at a right angle and you'd taxi at a right angle until you on the flight deck were sitting overhead the far edge of the runway if that makes sense and then you'd crank in on the nose wheel steering and swing around and you'd be lined up absolutely plumb on the centre line with minimum wastage of runway behind you and you'd then hold the position there until you got your until you you, you were always cleared to line up to start with and then you get your takeoff clearance and as soon as you got your takeoff clearance you would open the throttles up fully the reheats would cut in automatically as the engine spooled up and um, the takeoff as I've already mentioned I think it was extremely dynamic very different from a normal jumbo takeoff it was all happening accelerating fast things happening very quickly and you had the same sort of key speeds as you do on any conventional um, aircraft V1 which is the decision speed below which you can abandon the takeoff and stop within the remaining length of runway beyond which if you have a problem you've got to take the problem into the air with you and sort it out when you're in the air then you've got rotate VR which is when you pull back on the control column 
and present that delta wing at an angle to the airflow to generate the lift to get you airborne. Yep. And then V2, which is the safety speed. And typical sort of speeds, um, well, 155 is a sort of fairly typical V1, 198 a fairly typical sort of rotate speed, 220 a fairly typical um, V2. Yeah. Um, once you were airborne, uh, you'd have a subsonic climb up to 28,000 feet, a short subsonic cruise going over the West Country out to the Bristol Channel. Yeah. Then you get your transonic acceleration clearance, open the throttles, reheats on again, climb and accelerate, reheats on until a marked number of 1.7, and then you cut the reheats and coast it up rather more gently from 43,000 feet, which is roughly where you reach 1.7 Mach number, and you reach Mach 2 at 50,000 feet, and you then just leave the throttles wide open, and the airplane would cruise, climb, as you've got lighter, of course, as you burnt the fuel off, you'd sort of climb up and eventually you'd reach probably about 58, 59,000 feet yeah. on the other side of the Atlantic. And you'd then do a deceleration and descent process to bring you back to subsonic flight, making sure that you were subsonic at least 55 miles from the coastline so that you didn't land sonic booms on Manhattan. Mm -hmm. And then once you were subsonic, you'd just become part of the subsonic traffic flow just like any other aeroplane and then when it came into the landing a very easy aeroplane to land uh, we'd, we, we used to do what we call reduced noise approaches <coughs> it had a wonderful auto throttle system which was very precise if you wanted 153 knots that's exactly what you got 153 yeah. knots no messing about and what we used to do is we'd come down at 190 knots, down to 800 feet, so that we were A, travelling faster, B, cutting down the noise, B, cutting down the fuel used. And then at 800 feet, we'd plumb in the threshold speed, which typically was around 160 knots. And then over the next 300 feet, as you were descending down the glide slope, you'd be shedding 30 knots of airspeed as you went from... 190 knots down to 160 knots and then the last 500 feet you'd be coming down on a stable approach and then as you got near the runway that great delta wing was compressing the air between the underside of the wing and the runway surface and it would almost land itself and you'd have main wheel touchdown and then lower the nose wheel control column hard forward You've disconnected the auto throttles at this stage, by the way. Control column hard forward, and then you come in with the reverse thrust and the wonderful carbon fibre brakes, which worked brilliantly well. And you could stop the aeroplane very, very quickly if you really needed to. Yeah. And then you taxi to the gate, and the passengers would disembark. And more often than not, they'd disembark, say, oh, I wish the flight could have been a bit longer. We were enjoying it so much. And that really genuinely was the reaction of the great majority of the passengers. Really? Yeah. But did a lot of people fly just for the experience? No, the regulars on the regular flights. Um, I mean, we carried a lot of people from uh, the, the investment banks, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, yeah. Cantor Fitzgerald. Poor old Cantor Fitzgerald, of course, with the lot that virtually had all their 
staff killed in the dreadful 9-11 thing. They were our regulars, but... And probably the... the uh, if you're sort of trying to sort of single out the biggest group, I would say they were probably the biggest group. Right. Yeah. But then we'd carry politicians. I mean, I've carried Henry Kissinger dozens and dozens of times. Um, you carry the great classical musicians. Um, Pavarotti is somebody I've carried many, many times. Um, and then you'd have all the film stars. Paul Newman comes to mind. Um, and, and, the, and, of course, the, the, the pop mus- musicians as well. Yeah. So it, it was a sort of galaxy. It was, it was always fascinating to look at a passenger list on Concord because there were invariably a whole lot of household names that sprung out of the <laughs> out of that passenger list that you. I can imagine. So John, we're here in the Concord um, cockpit. Could you show us around for us? Okay, well <clears throat> the first thing I always like to say is this is a proper flight deck. None of this poncy glass cockpit rubbish. These are proper instruments, needles and dials. So what we've got here, first of all, the flight instruments. You've got a suite of flight instruments for the captain, the left-hand seat being the captain's seat, and those instruments all reproduced for the co-pilot on the right-hand seat. And I don't know how, whether you can see them clearly or not, but the instruments are airspeed indicator. That's a standby. That, that's the airspeed indicator there. Artificial horizon, rate of climb and descent indicator, that's a radio altimeter, pressure altimeter, and another altimeter here, a compass here, and a compass here, and a Mach meter there, and that shows the angle of incidence, that instrument there. And those instruments are all reproduced on the right-hand side. In the middle, you've got engine instruments for the four engines, N2s, N1s, fuel flows, EGTs, and the area of the nozzle at the back end of the engine. Coming across here, you've got all this stuff associated with the autopilots, Autopilot switches are there. Auto throttle switches are there. Flight director switches. And you can set the whole thing up for um, coupling up with the inertial navigation systems um, to the autopilot. You do that all through uh, the switchery up here. And you also couple it up for um, automatic landings, automatic approaches and landings. Um, if you're landing in foggy weather at Heathrow. So that's for the, all the autopilot stuff. And then coming up here, you've got a master warning system. And then coming up here, a whole series of instruments, really, well, switches related to various sort of technical um, um, issues to do with hydraulics and, and, and engines. I'm not going to go into all that lot there. And you can't actually see the flight engineer's panel, but maybe we'll get a picture of that uh, later on. But 
Uh, it's without doubt the most complicated flight engineer's panel of any civil airliner. And one of the reasons uh, the flight engineer was such an important person on the Concorde flight crew was because when you go supersonic with Concorde, you create a shockwave. And that shockwave forms on the nose as a sort of wall on the nose. And as you go from Mach 1 to Mach 2, that shockwave gets deflected backwards. And finally, when you're flying at Mach 2, that shockwave is like a cone radiating from the nose, trading along behind the aircraft, down to the surface of the Earth, out sideways, and up to the um, upper levels of the Earth's atmosphere. And that shockwave trails along like that behind the aeroplane for the whole time that you're flying supersonic. Now, as that shockwave changes shape from the sort of wall, if you like, and then it gets deflected backwards, what it's doing by changing its shape like that, it's pushing the centre of lift back down the wing. And if you didn't do anything about it, you'd end up with the centre of gravity where it was, the centre of lift having been pushed way, way back here, and you'd end up with a horribly unbalanced aircraft uh, wanting to pitch nose down all the time. Which you could correct for aerodynamically if you wanted to, but that would incur sort of drag penalties, which are highly undesirable. So the solution to it and this is just one of the examples of what a brilliant team, and I can't emphasise this enough, the team of aerodynamicists and engineers who created this wonderful, wonderful aeroplane were a brilliant team of people. They really were. And one of the solution, and the solution they came up for that particular problem was, hey, if the centre of lift moves back down the wing, let's move the centre of gravity back with it. And then when it goes subsonic and the reverse process happens as the centre of lift moves back forwards again, we can pump that fuel back forwards again. And that's exactly what we used to do. And that was the flight engineer's job, was to change the position of the centre of gravity. And just to illustrate the amount of the change, by comparison with the position of centre of gravity at takeoff. By the time you were flying at Mach 2 and you'd push the centre of gravity back by pumping fuel into tank 11 in the tail cone, the centre of gravity was about 8 or 9 feet aft of the position it was in for takeoff. So it was a substantial movement. Um, and it was something that needed to be monitored, obviously, very, very carefully. Very important aspect of the whole thing. Another thing while I'm on the subject of these brilliant engineers and aerodynamicists, because you're going so fast, you're, the airplane, the airframe is being subjected to frictional heating and to heating caused by compression. And the temperature on the skin, on the nose, goes up when you're flying at Mach 2 to a maximum of 127 degrees. That was the limiting temperature, 127 degrees Celsius. That's about 260 degrees Fahrenheit. And you, 
you could I could pull back this trim <coughs> up above my head here and actually touch the bare metal of the aeroplane and I tell you what you didn't keep your finger there any length of time at all it was red hot and the aeroplane actually expanded by about nine inches they tell me so you've got this airframe expanding as you go supersonic and then contracting again as you go subsonic you can't have that process affecting the passenger cabin I mean the passengers would be most disconcerted if they saw the cabin floor sort of stretching and the carpet ripping itself apart um, so the whole cabin floor sits on a system of rollers if you like so that the fuselage can expand and contract and leave the cabin floor completely unaffected by the whole process. I mean, they were just a brilliant team of people. Like, they, they, they were geniuses, some of them. They really, truly were. The, the brain power that went into this is staggering. No other word for it. So, could, John, could you show us the, the throttles and what the, where the reheats were? Yep. The throttles are here, and I'm unable to move them forward for some reason. They're locked, um, and I can't unlock them, I don't think. No. Anyway, they're the throttles, and the reverse thrust, the little handles there, and you once you've landed the throttles are fully closed and you pull back on those reverse thrust levers and that helps you decelerate on the runway and then the reheats in the actual aeroplane that I flew we're sitting on a prototype Concorde here and it's a bit different the instruments are not entirely exactly the same as they were on the aeroplanes that I used to fly I've never flown this one at all um, the reheat switches in the production aeroplanes that British Airways flew had piano keys for reheat switches. On this aeroplane, you can see they're just switches, just toggle switches. On the real aeroplanes that I flew, they were nice white piano keys, four of them in line there. And there's a gang bar that you could select them all four up at the same time and a gang bar to select all four off at the same time. So when you got to the pre-takeoff checks, one of the items would be to select the reheats, pre-select the reheats on. They wouldn't come on because the throttles are at idle at the moment. And then once you started the takeoff run, you'd as you opened the throttles up, those reheats would automatically cut in and off you'd go blasting into the air. And at whatever the noise abatement time was, something like a minute and 15 seconds after starting the takeoff would be a typical sort of noise abatement time. The non-handling pilot would go three, two, one noise, and the flight engineer would then cancel those reheats and throttle the engines back to a predetermined uh, setting on the throttle quadrant. And that would obviously cut the noise level and we'd tiptoe past... Windsor Castle so as not to disturb Her Majesty and uh, and then sort of gradually reintroduce full dry power, unreheated power for our climb up to the subsonic cruise altitude 
there's also another unique feature was the, the nose cone actually moves up and down, doesn't it? Yep. The nose cone does move up and down, and there's the control. And there uh, basically um, four positions for it. The one that it's in at the moment with the nose fully up and the visor, the heat shield, you might be able to see it on the picture you've got a, what you've got here is a conventional windshield like any other aeroplane <clears throat> and then beyond there encased in those heavy duty black bars that you may be able to see is the, the, the visor the heat shield so here we are with the nose up and the heat shield in its streamlined position to give the aeroplane nice aerodynamic shape the first stage of lowering things is to put that lever down to that detent there and that brings the no the the visor down into the nose cone the next stage is to lower the nose to five degrees which is that one there so that then the whole nose cone goes from fully up to five degrees down with the visor stowed inside the nose cone and that's the position that we used to use for taxiing for takeoff and for flying around in the immediate airport area and then the final position is fully down nose 12 uh, 12 degrees down and that was the 12 and a half degrees down actually and that was the position we used for landing and that was part of the landing checks so after you'd selected the undercarriage down the next item was nose to 12 nose, nose fully down um, and the only reason for lowering the nose was to get that great long nose cone out of the pilot's line of sight because you're coming into land at about 11 and a half, 11 three quarter degrees nose up attitude and if you didn't get that nose cone out of the way, all you'd see, no sign of a runway, just a nose cone, which is not very satisfactory. We were trained during the training, incidentally, to land with the nose stuck in the up position. Um, as far as I know, it never, ever happened. It certainly didn't in British Airways. I don't think it ever did in Air France either. And in fact, there was a very... <coughs> effective emergency drill for lowering the uh, for the emergency lowering of the nose which was simply to depressurize the hydraulics and let Mr Newton's laws of gravi gravity do the business <laughs> so the nose sort of dropped down clunk into a nose down position so there we are that's the um, that's the reason for the nose cone and the fact that it moves around um, is just simply to give the pilots a decent view of the runway when they're coming into land. And finally, John gives us a more personal side. Okay, John, do you have any hobbies? Hobbies? Flying? This is the principal hobby. I can actually say that uh, I started my flying in 1955 and here I am in 2017 and I've never had to work in my life. I've been paid to enjoy my hobby, You're a lucky man. which is which is a wonderful thing to be able to say. But um, 
Aside from that, I mean, I loved sailing. Um, we used to have a, a boat, uh, which was great fun. I had an Oster Aglet, going back to the flying theme again, which was a lovely little aeroplane. Um, relied rather on the curvature of the earth to get airborne. But it, again, it was a bit like Concorde in the sense that it was an unforgiving aeroplane. It would make a fool of you if you didn't treat it properly. Yes. And that's, that's a quality I really respect in any aeroplane. Um, photography has been a great um, passion of mine. I've rather given up on it now because I've got fed up with carrying tripods and all this stuff that you have to carry around with you. So I've gone off it now, but I used to do a lot of photography and I sold a lot of photographs commercially for calendars and stuff like that because I've done a lot of trips to Antarctica, for instance. I mean, I love travel um, and I've been three times to Antarctica. And if you've never been to Antarctica, I strongly recommend it as one of the most uh, incredible experiences you'll ever really? have in your life mm, so you mentioned for, um, photography there is there anywhere we can find your photos online I shouldn't think so no, <laughs> no. no. I do, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a complete dinosaur when it comes to anything to do with modern technology I, 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 I don't relate well to computers I don't. I do. I'm, I dip into into all this sort of social media stuff, only to keep an eye on my grandchildren and see what they say, what rude comments they're <laughs> posting about their grandparents. <laughs> but for the rest of it, I, I tend to avoid it. I don't. I don't like it. So um, no, I'm afraid. No, no, no. I can't think of any anywhere you'd find any of the photographs that I had taken commercially. I mean, I've got so many slides at home. I've got boxes and boxes of them. People would love to get their hands on those, I tell you. <laughs> so do you get to air shows still? I do go occasionally to air shows. I have to say now I've got sort of a bit lazy about it. I mean, I've been to so many air shows. I mean, right... I've literally... You won't believe this. When my family came back from India... This is, we're talking about 1950-51. They had no money. They'd left everything behind in India. Yeah. And we, they managed to buy the, this girls' school in Harpenden, and that's where we lived. It was the family home as well as, as, well as the family business. And we had no car. For years we didn't have a car. And the way the family used to go on holiday was to cycle everywhere. So mum and dad and the four children, ranging from me, who at this stage was about 12, I suppose, down to my youngest sister, who's a few months, she'd go in a sort of, um, in a sort of pannier thing at the back of one of my parents' bicycles. And we used to cycle from Hartenden with one stop somewhere at a youth hostel to the Isle of Wight. <laughs> for our holidays and I used to cycle up it was always used to be during the time of the Farm Brayer Show because in those days the Farm Brayer Show used to be in the summer I think it's moved to September now yes. um, but it used to be in, in July uh, right in the middle of the summer and I was at the Farm Brayer Show when John Derry 
crashed in the DH-110. Um, so my airshow experience goes back 60 years plus, 65 years. Um, I have been to a heck of a lot of airshows. And if I do go to an airshow now, it tends to be on a very selective basis. I still love seeing them flying around. Um, in a way, I almost prefer the sort of garden party atmosphere of an air show at Shuttleworth at Old Warden, yeah. which is, ap- I, I mean, one memorable one when I went to only a f- few years ago. And it was a gorgeous summer's afternoon going into summer's evening. And they trundled out all their, basically all their airplanes are flyable at Old Warden. And they had the Depa Dusan flying, uh, their sort of Avro box kite replicas and all this sort of stuff. And, I mean, that to me is, is fantastic. And I, I love watching that sort of air show because it takes you back into a different, into a different age. And it's such a, in a way, a refreshing change from the sort of jet machismo of uh, the fighter jets and so on. Why am I saying that when I used to fly Concorde all those years? <laughs> one of the noisiest ones. Which one of the noisiest ones ever? <laughs> so this might be a silly question, but uh, favourite aircraft? Yeah, that's definitely a silly question. You know what I'm going to say to that, don't you? Concorde. <laughs> however, however, I am going to also pick out the Spitfire, which I have never flown. And for my 80th birthday, which is coming up next month... Uh, my wife and my son are buying me as a birthday present a flight in the Spitfire with a friend of mine who flies them Cliff Spink Mm -hmm. who's a display pilot on Spitfires and various other historic fighters and um, he's going to take me up in the twin seat Spitfire and that's going to be the last entry into my logbook that'll be a pretty special one that's going to be a very special one yeah and finally, do you ever get sick of talking about aviation? I never get sick. I, I, I love talking about aviation to young people to try and inspire them maybe, possibly, into thinking about aviation as a career. I never, ever get tired of talking about Concorde. I do innumerable Concorde talks. Um, I, I go lecturing all around, all over the country, actually. I've been up as far as uh, Lossiemouth doing talks. I've been as far as um, Devon to do talks. I do it in this country to raise money for the lifeboats, who are my great passion. I think they're very brave people, lifeboatmen, and a very special breed of people. And it's also a wonderful charity, by the way. I'm going to do a plug for the lifeboats now, unashamedly, because it's one of the charities where something like 90% of the money they raise goes to the sharp end of the charity and not for paying of very much overpaid chief executive and a whole team of staff. So I'm a great fan of the lifeboats, partly because of the way they run it and partly because of the fantastic people who are involved in it. And I should also include, I don't specifically raise money, for these charities but you know anybody who does mountain rescue anybody who does search and rescue in helicopters they all come into the same category as the RNLI 
uh, crewmen. They're very special people who put their lives at risk to rescue people who very often have put themselves in that position through their own stupidity. Thanks very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And don't forget, you can watch and listen to all of our other interviews at aircrewinterview.tv. Also, please sign up to our newsletter for exclusive content, prizes, upcoming interviews and much more. And of course, go over to patreon.com forward slash aircrewinterview to help us grow and to become part of the team for as little as $1 per month. Thank you and see you soon.